0: Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to our Dirty Laundry
1: Stories of White Ladies Making a Mess of Things. And How We Need to Clean Up Our Act.
0: (laughs) Hello. Hi. There will be Katie with her chuckle in the background. Chuckling.
1: (laughs) Sneakling in the background. Welcome. How's it going? Uh, Shitty. What's new? Uh, No, (laughs) generally, honestly, it could be so much worse. I I always think that. But there's a reason you have not heard from us in that magical, like, 10-day time period, (laughs) two-week time period. We both got Uh, slammed at the same time by COVID. Got the Rona. We made it. This far, and then here we are. I I don't I don't know how we got it. I have like a couple of theories, but nothing that we can directly trace. And it's just right now, currently, my husband. But all day I've been working, and I know probably some of this is like my mind playing tricks on me. But I took a rapid test yesterday, and it was negative. But I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take one tomorrow, and I'm gonna guess it's not gonna be negative. Yeah, we're not isolating in our house. We're obviously quarantining from the world, but we have two kids: one who's almost five, one who's almost two. So, yeah, how riddle me this? Like, how am I supposed to work and take care? of Like, there's no way. Yeah. And yeah, the yeah. cot, like, I guess I could try, but what that would cost in terms of like our marriage and right. my physical <laughs> sanity. health and sanity—it's right. not worth it. So. No. Mm-hmm. We're just going for it, and my the worst-case scenario is, like, day nine, one of my kids tests positive. Like, yeah. we we had friends that they all tested positive the same day, and I was jealous. Isn't that weird? Like, <laughs> oh, that yeah, must we be nice. Yeah, staggered,
0: we staggered ours. Um, we know where mm-hmm. we got it from, but it's fine. It all worked out <laughs> in the end. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, what can you do? It's I guess yeah. if you're going to get it, this is... Oh, I mean, I don't even know. You can't. I shouldn't even say if you're going to get it. This is the one to get. I, that sounds terrible. Mm. Like the but
1: the version, the of Omicron it get, one. Yeah, yeah like mm-hmm. this. Like
0: it doesn't. it's doesn't feel good. It's not fun. Like mm. you feel pretty terrible. But it's. I feel like. Well, at least one study that I think somebody quoted said in Nevada, in the Las Vegas area, when they're testing the variants of um COVID in ICU patients because they definitely type Mm -hmm. all ICU patients. Um the ICU Mm -hmm. patients are still all Delta. Wow. So I think like the predominant form in Mm -hmm. the community is Omicron, but it doesn't seem to be causing the most severe disease. I'm sure Mm -hmm. that there are exceptions to that, of course. But and it's not like you want (sighs) to go out and try to get it. But I'm just saying don't feel I feel like there's a guilt (laughs) associated with getting it. Like you did something wrong. You're dirty. Like you're contaminated.
1: <laughs> it's honestly like a real reflection. Like it's a good moment for me to check myself because I didn't realize how much pride I was carrying uh-huh. around. Like and I think some of that is warranted and I think some of that is total bullshit yeah. and classist and yeah, yeah. like you know, really deep fuckery. So I just need to own that, like mm-hmm, that's part of it. I need to let that go. But, you know, yeah. Well, I I think we, everyone being as responsible as they can be given the constraints that they have, it's going to look different mm-hmm. for everybody. So, you know, whatever. I'm sure what everyone really wants to hear more about is coronavirus <laughs> and the pandemic. <laughs> but this is why we did not have an episode last week because we've just been like yeah, dealing with living. it. So, just you know, living. that's just what it is. Yeah. And you know what? Like giving everybody grace is a good thing to do. Yeah. And that's that so yeah yeah but this is our dirty laundry where
0: we talk about (laughs) coronavirus and white women fuckery
1: (laughs) (laughs) which includes coronavirus as i just reflected on Mm -hmm. yeah but we are two white women who've been friends since we were like 11 Mm -hmm. and we are now definitely not 11 (laughs) at all i was actually thinking we're probably we've probably been friends for 30 years yeah that's crazy it's I know so that's just a lot seems of years, unreal. Yeah, thirty years. Wow, <laughs> we're old. It's we're <laughs> old. It's okay. I actually the other day was like rubbing my forehead because I, you know, had a headache, and I was like, oh my god, I can feel. The little canyon of my wrinkle, like a forehead wrinkle, like I can actually feel the indentation of it. I was like, oh, no, thank God I have bangs. (laughs) Um, But that means I have to wash my hair because, you know, days I don't, they're really greasy and I put them back. But not anymore because that is a canyon on my forehead. There's Botox for that. Just Just saying. I don't. (laughs) I know. I know you're pro Botox. This is one (laughs) point where we're going to disagree. I'm. I just feel like you know what? I want to look how I look. That's fine. But I'm not going to lie. It freaks me out for sure. So we're just rolling with it. Yeah, man. But if if you're here, we're glad you're here because this is where we talk about um, history and current events and white women. And we are white women. We. Talk about how that intersects with class and gender and sexual identity and race and ethnicity and settler colonialism and as much as we can try to think about all of those complications. Um, but that's what we do. Yeah. And, we and we're learning a ton. Learning. Yeah. And I, I feel like. There's so much. Yeah.
0: I love how much that we've learned and we hope that we're passing that along and giving it to you in digestible and somewhat interesting formats. That will also lead to you changing your behavior if you need to do that. Yes,
1: actions, (laughs) actions, yes. And I'm really excited about this. I I feel like we are opening just the world's biggest box that's going to suck us in for for years. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, by the way, this is the last thing I'll say about COVID. (laughs) My daughter, who's four last night, was playing COVID lady, by which she meant like testing everybody, you know, like she had a little testing station (laughs) and you'd walk through, and she had like ear swabs, which is not Not, a thing for testing, but that's fine. So she's swabbing, swabbing and she goes, Oh, I'm sorry, but you're unnegative," which is her way to say positive. And then she said, um, you're going to be sick for infinity days and you won't be able to get any work done. And I was like, yeah, Yeah. that's exactly right.
0: That's exactly how she's heard any of that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. She also just learned about infinity. So now everything is infinity days. But her assessment of that situation seemed really good. Oh, anyway, gosh. speaking of infinity, I think this season we're focusing on um, the more modern waves of white feminism. And last week or last episode, we talked about why even thinking about the waves itself mm-hmm. is a problem. Um, but we've done a lot of work already looking at The suffrage movement and uh, reproductive rights, and so just to think about what we're what we're going to jump into, and the recent books that have been written about critiques of white feminism. I'm just so excited that I know there's so much, and I, I am sure we are just barely scratching the surface of what is out there.
0: Yeah, this could occupy our time for a long time. We always think we're going to cover all these topics, and like. (laughs) A couple episodes and then it's like oh six <laughs> months later we're still here
1: <laughs> discussing this <laughs> we've moved like a year forward <laughs> in time yes uh, no it's it's all good yeah so Okay. last so-
0: time last episode we kind of covered l- the history of the wave theory and why that's problematic to begin with um right. but the first wave we've kind of figure we've talked about in our voting rights yeah And so go back and listen to all of that stuff if you want to know about the fuckery that occurred um, at that point in time with our buddies, Susan B. et al. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we're going to kind of investigate what is discussed as the beginning of the second wave, although we know that that's problematic. But that's the framework that's been used. We're kind of going to start there um, and talk about the second wave of feminism and the mother of that second wave, who has um, been coined that her name is Betty Friedan. We talked about her book, The Feminine Mystique, just briefly. And that's kind of the focus of what we're going to discuss today, because it has been credited as kind of starting the second wave. Although feminism never went away, and it depends on what like kind of different movements within feminism you're talking about. But since white ladies like to think that everything's about them, (laughs) (laughs) this was about the mobilization of a large group of white women coming back into feminism and into the political awareness.
1: You know, I I think for me, why it's actually really useful for us to start with Betty Friedan is because of the problems with starting there. Like she represents her books popularity represents white middle-class college educated women starting to care about certain things and i think that's perfect for our podcast it's perfect for what we're studying like Mm -hmm. what's wrong with that Mm -hmm. and why would they start caring now and not care before and what did they care about what did they not give a shit about Mm -hmm. you know that that is the problem with so much so yeah i i think just the fact that she starting the second wave or even having a second wave that starts there is like actually kind of perfect for what we're trying to think about yeah so i know right. almost have nothing. you read I'm the so feminine excited mystique to learn oh god you- i mean maybe parts of it in like a women's history class yeah. in undergrad i don't i have not know. i, I haven't. don't remember
0: it's embarrassing that i have never read it because i Pride myself what? on my liberal arts education <laughs> for my undergrad in so one of the most like me. liberally schools out there. Um, and I did not take any gender women's studies any sort of thing when I was in college, which is Oh really?
1: Yeah. Never. I didn't that never actually did. really shocks Isn't me. Isn't that weird? It is yeah, weird. That yeah. That is well. Anyway, I, I mean, did I I took one women's history class and I remember the professor, it was in Iowa. I went to a public university in Iowa. And the professor was a woman from New York City. And she was her first year. And she's like, the fuck is this place? Like she was in have just having major culture shock to the Midwest in general. Um, I don't know if she stayed a professor there. I should look up to see where she ended up. But it was a fascinating class. Yeah, I remember being really excited to learn about everything. And I'm sure I bet we read excerpts. I don't yeah. know. I'd have to go back and yeah. dig through. old tubs that are in my attic.
0: I know. So Uh I still haven't read it, but given all of the um, articles and critiques and everything I listened to this week, now I feel like I need to read it, but I feel like this (laughs) might be a better time to read it because I obviously would not, I don't think have dissected it as critically, Hmm. you know, 25 years ago as I am now and like looking at all of the nuances and everything and the what's said and what isn't said more importantly in it. So Mm -hmm. I think... I am interested in going back and reading it, and from everything that I read, they everyone says it is very easy to read because it's a very mm-hmm. personal analysis. It's not written in like a dry, scholarly, like technical uh-huh. kind of way. It's a very personal mm-hmm. way, which is probably why it had such wide appeal among white women mm-hmm. at that time. It sold over three million copies. Um, during well, Betty Friedan's is, by the way,
1: is she is she still alive? no no? Or she, she died, died in two thousand
0: six. Okay. So she was oh, 85 so when she passed okay. away. Uh, intr- yeah, tell like, me
1: about her life. Yeah, so background yeah.
0: on her. She was born February 4th, so we're coming up. Ah! On her In
1: my birthday's February, February. 5th. Yay! <laughs> I don't know why I got so excited to share my birthday with someone who's probably, like, extremely... Problematic. Very problematic. <laughs> Very problematic. <laughs> but like all of us, she's, fine. she's complicated. That is a word
0: that many people use to describe yes. her, complicated, and we all are, and that doesn't mean that we don't have good contributions along with our troubling right. ones. So, um, yes. yes, she was born on February 4th, 1921, and interestingly, not that it matters at all, but she also died on February 4th.
1: In two thousand six. She died on her birthday. No. Okay, question would you prefer that?
0: I don't know. It seems kind of interesting to go out of the world on the same
1: day you came into yeah. it. I kind of feel like it's a neat and tidy little package. Yeah. Like <laughs> what well, yeah. Okay, this is very much a tangent, but I'm just so excited to talk to you at all. <laughs> would you want to know the date oh, of your death? Oh. I feel like Yes. I th- yes. Wow.
0: I feel like yes, because I think because I have kids and hmm. I i mean, it's terrible to say that I would utilize my time better. But of course you would. I think. And hmm. I mean, I, w- I wish I could say that I live every day as if it might be my last. <laughs> I clearly fucking don't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I think my my browser history will tell you I definitely don't. Like, I know, but did I need to read that article about Kim Kardashian and <laughs> like Pete? What's his name? Yeah, no, no, I did not need to read that. Oh god! No, but I feel
0: I feel like it would be it would be hard, but I feel like the benefits of it would maybe
1: outweigh that. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? And maybe our society would be like super different if everyone did, and that's just how it was. Yeah. That might be different than if it's like just you, some person whispered in just your ear. Yeah. I think that would be like a major mind fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but if it was just like how things were. Yeah,
0: you all knew. I don't Everybody know. was wearing I, a clock above their head.
1: Like I'm gonna say, right. I'm gonna say no. no. I think it would be like super stressful. I, I think it would just produce so much anxiety in me. I and like think of the last couple of days. It would just be I don't know. I think it would be hard yeah i think it'd be really hard but if i could just like put it in I like the idea of wrapping things up on the day. Like, <laughs> give me a nice birthday, and then I mean, I'll let's peace let's out caveat night.
0: like uh, forty-five years from now, at least. Oh, god, <laughs> at least, right? Like, oh, at least, yes, right, right,
1: right. Not, that, not like let's throw not next
0: week. Let's throw that part into the universe along Please. with the day.
1: <laughs> Especially uh, since we will be celebrating my birthday right in a few days, right. and I would really rather not have that be the last. one. So yeah, 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 knock on every piece right. of wood like, around me. Please. Okay, let's move no. on. <laughs> okay, so she was born February 4th, okay.
0: 1921. Yes, died February 4th, 2006 birthday. at the age of 85. Mm-hmm. She was born Betty Goldstein. Her parents were immigrants, so her father, Harry, was a hmm. jeweler. He was from Russia, and her mother, Miriam, hmm. was a journalist, and she was from Hungary. So the journalist aspect huh. in her mom's like career actually, I think, plays pretty prominently into her... Decisions and her analysis of later that's life. That's
1: fascinating because mm-hmm. her mom would have been born oh. probably like the late 1800s. Yeah, so that's yeah. a really interesting career for someone a woman to time. have had yeah. at that point. And yeah. apparently she
0: gave it up when she became a wife and a mother, um, mm-hmm. which then it, she, Ferdinand comments on later um they were a jewish family and she also said that her experience of anti-semitism kind of informed her earliest inclinations to investigate Mm -hmm. like oppression and injustice against groups of people Um, but she had referenced her own mother as a quote unhappy housewife and at one point when she was talking about why she decided to write about all of this stuff she had written that i could not go home again to the life of my mother So there must have been something that she saw in um, as a child and her mom of being unfulfilled or feeling like she had missed out on something because of um, not giving up her career.
1: Sure. That totally makes sense. I think that like generational. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Maybe that's a little traumatic. I don't want to call it generational trauma in the same way that other kinds right. of trauma exists, but it does feel like, yeah, watching your parents has to shape and inform you. Of course it does. Yeah. 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 So mm. she um, attended college
0: at Smith, which is a women's college. Um She had an undergraduate degree in psychology. She graduated in 1942, summa cum laude. Is that how you say that? I meant to Google it. I'm so bad at Latin. And I took two years of Latin.
1: Oh, really? Yeah,
0: In in high school, (laughs) I took two years of Latin. I think I cheated on But a lot you did of not stuff. graduate. <laughs> Laude.
1: I, I always said loudy, but maybe that's yeah. not right. I, mean, I don't trust my pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't remember
0: a lot of high school. Ergo.
1: <laughs> I don't even know if that's right.
0: Yeah. yeah. So then she okay. went to well. UC Berkeley for a year. And there was something in her history that I read she had a boyfriend at Berkeley who discouraged her from continuing her graduate degree. So she didn't go on to get a PhD. But she broke up with <laughs> that dude before she moved out to New York. So. Hmm. What was she studying in graduate school? Uh, I think it was along the same lines of psychology. Hmm. Um, Hmm. But then when she moved to New York, she worked as a journalist. She actually got a start kind of in journalism and um, writing articles for newspapers at Smith. She was the editor of one of the college campus papers. um, That was a pretty liberal paper that um, argued for things like non-intervention in World War II and supported unionization, um, a lot of work issues. In 1946 to 1952, she wrote for the Federated Press, which was at that point in time, like America's foremost le- leftist news service, and also wrote for UE News, which was a publication of the United Electric Radio and Machine Workers, American Union, which was described as a radically aligned leftist publication. Um, publication, mm-hmm. It called for things like equal pay and to discrimination. And in her early work, interestingly, given some of the criticisms that come up of the feminine mystique, she did highlight the situation of African-American women and the fact that they faced this double bar of being female and African-American together but then that never comes up in the feminine mystique which we'll talk about later hmm. um, so given that history of her journalism her leftist views her progressive nature um, she has been criticized too because in the feminine mystique she kind of represents herself as this typical cooped up unhappy housewife and Um, a 1998 book called uh, Betty Friedan and the Making of the Feminine Mystique by Daniel Horowitz. He says that's not really who she was. I mean, she did definitely Mm -hmm. have this history and political writing and activism and being involved in all of these things. And she continued to freelance, write even after she got married. Um, So she was involved in political things. She wasn't just scrubbing the floors and like making her husband dinner.
1: I'm curious to you about her Judaism. Like, was she a practicing Jew? Was that a really strong part of her identity or not? Well, it came up... Because when I think of, like, the housewife of the 50s, I think of, like, the waspiest lady. And this is, you know, she is not that, in some ways, at least. And I just wondered what the degree to which, you know, she, her Jewish identity was salient for her.
0: I do think she stayed pretty connected to it, because especially in later years in her life, then she became... um, What's called a Zionist, and like really was active in, in working against anti-Semitism, especially um, in women's issues. So I think it it made it stayed something. I'm not sure about like her religious, but at least culturally, it was something that she was always very involved in. But we'll also get to a critique of some of the ways that she used analogies with um, various historical issues being problematic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, the backdrop for writing The Feminine Mystique was in 1957, she was coming up on her 15 year reunion for Smith College, and she wanted to survey all of her classmates, um, about what had been going on in their lives in the 15 years since they graduated. Like, had they been using mm-hmm. their education? What were they doing now? All of this kind of thing. And the responses that she received are what she used to start formulating Uh, her publication of the book because she found out that many of them said they were very dissatisfied with their lives. Mm -hmm. They had gotten educations, but then had gone on to get married and have kids and they just felt like their lives were lacking something. So based on her responses to that, she formatted deeper questionnaires. She conducted interviews with people. She talked to psychologists and then she organized all of those findings and published the feminine mystique based on that in 1963. Um, but she,
1: but the book itself, she's interweaving that with her own personal story. Or yeah. So then she said it was like really accessible.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, she's talking, these are her friends that she graduated with. So sure, she's talking sure. about like all of their experiences and how it relates to um, her experience as a housewife. And then it just kind of all weaves into this book.
1: Which. Is like already kind of a red flag because and and also a problem with white women Mm -hmm. like, oh, Mm -hmm. let me talk to other white women just like me to find out what the problem capital T capital P is without thinking like, oh, maybe this is our problem, but that it's not the only problem, maybe not even the most important problem. Yeah maybe there are other people we should be talking to be in relationship with, et cetera.
0: Yeah. We're going to get into like, I think one of the best critiques of the feminine mystique that bell hooks wrote about. And she calls uh Betty Friedan's analysis, narcissistic, which I think is a good <laughs> term for that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so, but the feminine mystique in general. So I was like, what does this mean? What is she referring to with the feminine mystique? And, it is what the term that she used to describe this societal assumption that women would find total fulfillment through housework, marriage, sexual passivity and child rearing alone um, and was kind of based on the prevailing attitude again within this part of the population within this group of women, that a truly feminine woman would have no desire for higher education, careers, a voice in politics, and they would find all their fulfillment in the domestic sphere, which very much reminds me of like our anti-suffragist ladies that we talked about in our first season and also of my own conservative religious upbringing not necessarily Mm. from my parents at all because we've discussed i came from a fairly liberal family especially within the sphere that i was raised in but definitely Mm -hmm. the culture and i think a lot of conservative religious protestant evangelical cultures of that time that was kind of the idealized woman
1: Well, and I'm thinking way back to our very original first few episodes um, when we were learning about Haudenosaunee women and thinking about Mm -hmm. other social organizing models Mm -hmm. where maybe along gender lines, there are different roles, but they all are very important and revered. And that's different than this model, which is stay in your place and it's an inferior place. Mm -hmm. and shut up Mm -hmm. already Mm -hmm. like and we're gonna we're gonna like revere you in this very patronizing demeaning way and we'll be able to do with you whatever we want like remember learning about how when um uh like white women would go visit the Haudenosaunee and they couldn't believe that women could just like walk around at night by themselves right, and, and they safe. weren't fearful mm-hmm. of yeah there wasn't rape there wasn't domestic violence and the Haudenosaunee women were like what are you even talking about like, <laughs> why what would that, that happen yeah right mm-hmm. so I like that to me is a giant red flag it's less about like they're necessarily being different types of roles i think there's an interesting conversation Mm -hmm. to have about the pros and cons of that kind of social structure but it's really clear to me that in patriarchy it's not just oh it's different it's like in you're inferior Mm -hmm. there's a hierarchy and you can't say anything
0: fucked up way of like holding you up on a pedestal while also telling you that you're not worth as much
1: Yeah, you're only good for these things, Mm -hmm. and we can do you harm and violence at any time. Yeah. And you just have – you belong to us. Like, that's – it's, it's like, the way that – I don't know. I was just going to make the analogy of, like, a pet, but I honestly, like, that's not even how I treat our family dog. Like, our Mm -hmm. dog is part of our family, Mm -hmm. you know? So I I don't know. I think it's – that – I'm less opposed to thinking about there being different spheres and I'm super opposed to there being like an oppressive hierarchy, misogynistic patriarchy. Okay. So, So she's talking to these other people, these other women and they are feeling frustrated. Yeah, They
0: have all of these things that you're supposed to want within this feminine mystique. They've got their house, they got the husband, they have the kids. And so their inability to live up to that, to be happy in this, area where mm-hmm. they are, have been told that that's what they're supposed to want was then termed the mm-hmm. phrase, the problem that has no name. So it was just this mm-hmm. frustration that women had a hard time articulating that they had a guilt even articulating an unhappiness mm-hmm. because they were supposed to be fulfilled by this. And they were not again, a very specific subset of women. Um, mm-hmm. And some of this, she based a lot of, she, as I said, her, uh, undergrad was in psychology she based a lot of her analysis mm. in the theories of uh, abraham maslow don't know if you remember reading oh, or learning maslow's about maslow's needs of hierarchy yes, mm-hmm. a hierarchy, hierarchy of, of needs, needs. Yeah. yes great. so which very quickly you know starts out with a bottom like physiologic needs of being fed um basically being able sheltered. to provide, then yeah, shelter, then moving up to safety, then love and belonging, then esteem, and then the top of the pyramid is self-actualization. Um, mm-hmm. So in a lot of what she was arguing, she was saying that like women were not able to reach that top hierarchy of growth and self-actualization. They may have had all of their needs met in the bottom hierarchies, but they weren't uh, obtaining that top um mm-hmm achievement.
1: Which already, like, there's part of me that feels like, okay, but there are also women that are definitely not getting any of those other (laughs) needs met, like, even if you look at that theory. So maybe be concerned about that before you're worried about, like, reaching the pinnacle of human existence yourself. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, again, it's
0: just not looking outside of your own experience or considering Mm -hmm. any of that at all. Um. Mm -hmm. The other historical background of what was going on at the time that this was written, so this is post-World War II. All men had returned home from war, and we know that women were working a lot when the men were deployed for war, but then when they got home, they were just expected to go right back into the home, go right back into their domestic life, be totally happy and fulfilled with that, and just take care of these men that had returned from war. Um The Cold War was escalating in the 1950s, and there was very much a concerted effort to cultivate this idea of the american nuclear family in this time period and it was part of the ideological battle against like soviet russia and a way to say like this is america this is our greatness this is how capitalism works this is how the family works and the female role in that was very much idealized and supposed to be an envy of women who lived in you know the horrible outside unfree terrible world Mm -hmm. as lots of americans like to see the rest of the world which is also Mm -hmm. very problematic and not at all an Mm -hmm. accurate representation um there's some stats that came up in my research of that period of time so the age of women when they got engaged had been dropping into this time period so in 1950, hmm. there were 14 million girls who were engaged by the age of 17.
1: Ah! Mm-hmm.
0: And the average age of marriage at this time was <laughs> 20 years old. Um, female amazing. enrollment in college in 1920 had been 47% of college enrollees were women. And then in 1958, it was down to 35%. It went down. It went down. Huh from 1920 to 1958. So there was very much a regression post-World War II. And then even of those women that were in college, 60% of female students were dropping out of college to get married or before they were deemed to become undesirable for marriage because they were too educated at that point. So a lot of women, this is when the term the mrs degree was also coined i don't know if you've Mm. ever heard Mm -hmm. that so you like you go to college to get your mrs your mrs degree to find someone to marry that is i think still a haha not really funny joke that's used at byu the mormon school in utah (laughs) lots of girls there looking for the mrs degree um yeah gross
1: uh, i Just... mean i i when i worked um at, in a teacher ed program here in iowa there were definitely like a wave of engagements after winter break and after spring break and you know i remember having to talk to my students almost all of whom are white women by the way mm-hmm. in an elementary education program they to say like don't feel bad <laughs> like you like i I don't know, there just weren't, especially coming from like rural communities and it, like certain Christian denominations where they felt like something was wrong with them or that they were broken or like they mutants of some kind because they weren't engaged at, by the time they were seniors in college. Yep. And it's not to say that some of the, my students who got engaged are, maybe they're going to have great marriages. Yep. I hope that they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it just, it, it really struck me like, oh my gosh, how is this still, I don't know. I was surprised. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's what's going on at the time that she's writing this in the sphere of the white middle to upper class lady world. Um, so her central mm-hmm. thesis in the Feminine Mystique, basically to boil it down, is that women as a class are suffering from this per- pervasive social system and delusions and values that they're supposed to find fulfillment in this identity where they vicariously live through their husband and children and they're expected to just cheerfully devote their whole lives to them and live through basically making their lives worthwhile so they have this absence mm-hmm. of genuine creative self-defining kind of work and for dan's answer to this she really didn't have from what I read and I didn't go through all of it, obviously, but it was more, the answer is just like women need to get jobs. They need to move out of the house and get jobs and then they'll become more fulfilled. Um, This is problematic for lots of reasons, but there's a number of critiques of her book um, that I wanted to go through. The first and foremost is that it's like a racist and classist book because it doesn't Mm -hmm. consider this entire Majority really of women outside of upper middle class white women that have a completely different experience. Um, but Bell, we are
1: already working, many right. of them. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's the thing. problem. And, like they and P.S. Are Not self actualized. <laughs> right. Like, there's, you know, there's just so many layers. Yeah. Okay, so tell so me about So well, we're gonna well we're gonna get excited. to that at
0: the end because I oh, want to okay. kind of break down a lot of stuff that Bell Hooks talks Great. about with that. But the other Great. things to kind of look at it's critique based on some problematic foundations that she uses. So she bases some hmm. of her analysis off of work from people that has then since been discredited. So hmm. she was basing her, some of her work on like women and sexuality from Margaret Mead's writings, which then her research had some issues. Um, then Albert, is it Albert Kinsey who studied like human oh, sexuality? Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of his research, she we'll talk in just a little bit. her her work is extremely homophobic as well. And some of that was based on Kinsey's studies, which their his studies were then found to be pretty troubling and not valid in the way they were constructed. And then there was another Jewish writer, um, Bettelheim was his last name, who wrote a lot about experiences in the Holocaust. And she based a lot of her very problematic analogies with the Holocaust based on what he had written. And so it's saying she used all of these things, which have then been discredited. And then the question is if the basis of what you're writing about has become discredited. How valuable can your conclusions be at the end of that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So getting to some of her Holocaust uh, analogies that she used, she cited a lot of this writing by psychologist Bruno Bettelheim. And one of her chapters in the book is titled progressive dehumanization, the comfortable concentration camp which is what she termed kind of women's roles in their homes and yeah called them the comfortable concentration camp. Now she was clear, it says in the book, that women in the US had it much better than Nazi prisoners of the Holocaust. Thanks. You think? Betty.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. But she still didn't like give up the analogy. She still kept using the analogy um and based it on some of this psychiatrist's writings that and said that women, suburban women had learned like Jews in the Holocaust to kind of adjust their role. They became more dependent, passive, childlike when they were in concentration camps, which other people have said that's not an accurate representation what? at all of what happened in concentration camps. So that's
1: bananas. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it just. And I, I'm. i Wow. OK. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but she kept up with. The whole thing. So there was Mm. that uh, critique. And then, again, moving on to her homophobic critiques that she had in her book, she said some really, Mm. really awful and really, frankly, homophobic things in her time. So she wrote that there were frightening implications for the future of our nation in the parasitical softening that is being passed on to a new generation of children. Specifically, she identified a recent increase in overt manifestations of male homosexuality and said, I do not think this is unrelated to the national embrace of the feminine mystique, for the feminine mystique has glorified and perpetuated the name of femininity and passive childlike immaturity, which has been passed on from mother to son.
1: Oh my god. Okay, wait. I just want to wrap my mind around this because it's such a fun house mirrors argument. Mm-hmm. Okay, so because now people tend to argue for a nuclear family and for like the moms to stay at home as a way to preserve these roles and traditional values mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. And so there's I you know, you'll hear people say like, oh well the uh, the the idea that kids go off in directions that conservative people wouldn't want them to go. And I i know I'm saying conservative. I don't even know what to say. Homophobic ways. Mm-hmm. Like, if they just had a dad who was masculine and a mom who was feminine, then that kid wouldn't have been gay. Yeah. You know, that yeah. kind of logic. But she's, she's saying, saying the opposite. The opposite, mm-hmm. like I
0: also don't want kids to be gay, mm-hmm. and these moms are passing on their softness to their that's male just children. So mm-hmm. bizarro. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she okay. said she called. Ho- she said homosexuality is spreading like a murky smog over the American scene. Ew. Male homosexuality as the end point of the feminine mystique is not just artificial, a regrettable but accidental distortion of the reality overlays. It is a sinister source of cultural contamination. This murky smog is the final smut, the last dirty word in the story of that mystique. That clean feminine exterior is now found to hide a particularly nasty can of worms. Marketing and the mystique are together leading to... Spirited, undisciplined beatnickery and the deterioration of human character. <laughs> Jesus.
1: Uh-huh. Oh my God. Uh-huh. Well, so she is she banking on people's homophobia being deeper than their sexism? I, I suppose. Yeah. In this, in the people she's talking to, hers is. Like, stop <laughs> infantilizing me so that we can all unite against gay people. Right. Yeah.
0: And she was equally Uh. as harsh against lesbians. She was very determined to keep them out of the feminist movement because she thought that they would marginalize it. And she termed them at one point the Lavender Menace
1: Hmm.
0: and tried to bar them from Uh. being at different meetings. Apparently in 1977, she acknowledged her error in thinking that at a women's conference and pledged to support lesbian rights. And at that conference, I think this must have been all planned and people knew she was going to do it because when she made that announcement and pledged her support, then the whole audience like released a big, huge uh Whatever everybody like released lavender balloons into the air when she said that, which is also kind of very fucking white woman Pinteresty strangeness,
1: right? (laughs) It's totally. But I also like you don't get a balloon like collage because you said the right thing one time, right? Yeah,
0: when you did a lot of damage too.
1: Yeah, yeah, that thing.
0: Mm. No, mm. Okay. yuck. Um, another critique that you know that I love because I hate capitalism <laughs> <laughs> is that for Dan's entire analysis just ignores the role of capitalism in this structure of society. Um, and there were women who were writing about it at this time, and some of the people that have. Mm been against the feminine mystique being the, you know, poster child for the second wave of feminism said there were mm-hmm. women writing better things at that point in time. And they were mm-hmm. overlooked by the popularity of this book. Um One of the writers, I loved what the way that she said it. Um She says, this is an article from Sheila Bappett. And I'll put a lot of the articles I've been using for this in our show notes. But it says, in a sea of groundbreaking feminist writing, for book is sort of like George Clooney to great filmmakers right now. Important, well-known, sexy, but only scratching the surface of the talent in the field. (laughs) Above all else, Ferdinand's book is ideologically safe by comparison to the full body of feminist writings. Um, She analyzed the impact of a wide range of patriarchal institutions publishing military politics on middle-class women's lives without trying to upend any of those institutions.
1: But that's just exactly why it's popular, right? Yeah. Like, I I think that speaks to, like, she didn't ruffle enough feathers and that she's tapping into these women who don't want these other things to change, but they, like, they don't want their class privilege to change. Exactly, Right? They don't want to analyze that part of it. So they're not Mm going to think about that part, or they don't want their straight privilege to change. So we're not going to talk about that. So it doesn't surprise me that her you know, really clearly laser beam saying like, you know, this one thing that you don't have that you wish you had. I also, you know, I can give voice to that. I can amplify that Mm -hmm. desire. Um, that, that makes sense to me. Why white middle-class straight women would be like, yes, tell me more. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So one of Mm -hmm. the things that they talk about is, um, a publication, a pamphlet published in 1972 by, um, yeah, this is a good one maria rosa Dalla costa <laughs> and selma james called the power of women and the subversion of community um i want to find this and we can maybe do a mini soda talk about this at some point oh, great. um But they used a feminist reading of Marx to challenge the left orthodoxy of the role of women. They were among the first to apply Marxism to the gender division of labor, evaluating what it means for intensive domestic labor to remain completely invisible to capital markets. Yes. They said serving men and children in wageless isolation had hidden that we were serving capital. Now we know that we are not only indispensable to capitalist production in those countries where we are 45 percent of their waged labor force. We are always indispensable in their workforce at home, cleaning, washing, ironing, making, disciplining and bringing up babies, servicing men physically, sexually and emotionally. So they're saying, you know, mm-hmm. they were trying to look at the ways that all of these legal, societal, cultural boundaries um kind of valued what type of labor was important who performed labor that was valued, and why some labor is generally invisible in capitalism. It's
1: so infuriating, especially coming off of the pandemic, to know mm-hmm. how deeply entrenched these issues are and still no resolution, and to look at Congress, you know, what proposals are out there for making this better or making child care less invisible or, you know, paid more. It's just infuriating to me that this much time has gone on and like zero progress. Maybe I'm being too doom and gloom, but it it's just it is so clear and so awful that women's labor in systems of care is so disrespected, especially women of color, especially immigrant women. It's just, yeah. Oh my God. And there are women
0: who have been writing since this time period about bringing Mm -hmm. that to light and about things like Mm -hmm. wages for domestic work, like making all of this more valued and putting an actual monetary frame onto it. Because yeah, if you had to hire somebody, there's been various analyses done. If you hired someone to complete all the work that, typically women have been doing in homes. It would be a six-figure jobs for all these women that are staying home and doing this work. And that's course, how capitalism continues to work is by making that yeah. labor, basically.
1: Well, that's how capitalism Non-valued. started. Was on slavery. Like yep. it depends on exploitation. That's yep. how it functions. Yep. I, you know, I'm thinking too about having just had a baby a couple of years ago. The the maternity leave policies, mm-hmm. like the basically very non-existent or crappy maternity leave policies, and and just the the fact that as a society, the U.S. Like I'm talking about, like as a governmental state institution just has such little care for that phase of a child's life. This is where I just call bullshit on like, I know we talked about this with reproductive rights, but like it's hard to call yourself pro-life movement when you aren't behind fully paid leave for parents. Mm that goes on for at least a couple of years, you yeah. know? Yeah. Ugh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another soapbox for another day, but yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Put so. a pin in that pamphlet. <laughs> so we're about to get to bell hooks. Just a few like
0: small other criticisms. Yeah. Like, so she, Great. there are a lot of personal critiques of Betty Friedan. She became very moderate, almost conservative in her involvement in feminist, um, the feminist movement as time goes on. I mean,
1: not a surprise right. given that that's how she's framing things at the outset. Yeah. yeah.
0: She also, she had very close relationships with other prominent fe- feminists of the time, like Gloria Steinem and a woman mm-hmm. named Bella Abzug, who I don't know as well. I need to find mm-hmm. out more about, but at one point she wrote a column from McCall's magazine where she called them female chauvinist boars and accused them of trying to destroy the movement with radical politics.
1: Okay. Yeah, she also
0: like yeah. campaigned for Shirley Chisholm's presidency, the first Black woman who ran yeah. for president. Yeah. But she said in one of her campaigns that she promised to host a traveling watermelon feast.
1: No. As no. part of it. No. I mean.
0: Y- no. Yeah. 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 Not. Mm, mm. Mm. So. Um. She did a lot of great things. She found it. So she was a, one of the co-founders of now the National Organization of Women, which still exists as a very important uh, feminist organization. She was its first president. Um, she had a lot of campaigns to end, um, work ads that were classified by sex for greater representation of women in government. She did work on things like child care centers for working women, for abortion rights. Mm-hmm. She founded, um, NARL, which is the National Association mm-hmm. for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, because she thought that NOW was not, um, progressive enough in its abortion views. So then she went and helped found NARL. It does make
1: me wonder if she was interested in, um, like knowing the, the reproductive justice rights, Oh my God, this is where I'm at with my life right now. What What's it called when sterilization Jeez. Yep. <laughs> that was, did she work on any of those issues or was she singularly focused on abortion? I think abortion which know was, was like, yeah, okay. was her issue. I mean, which
0: not yeah. Yep. Yep. Which we talked mm-hmm. about in the last several episodes of the last season. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but I did want to dive into bell hooks critique of the feminine mystique because she has so many, I just kind of want to read a lot of this because she's amazing Great. and she says it way better than I could say it. Um, so she's basically criticizing who for leaves out and she calls them the Mm. silent majority. She says, feminism Mm. in the United States has never emerged from the women who are most victimized by sexist oppression. Women who are daily beaten down mentally, physically, and spiritually. Women who are powerless Mm. to change the condition in life, their condition in life. They are a silent majority. A mark of their victimization is that they accept their lot in life without visible question, without organized protest, without collective anger and rage. Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique is still heralded as having paved the way for contemporary feminist movement, it was written as if these women did not exist.
1: Yeah. She said, oh, Friedan's famous so phrase, and...
0: the problem that has no name, often quoted the, was to describe the condition of women in the society, actually referred to the plight of a select group of college-educated, middle- and upper-class mm-hmm. married white women, housewives bored with leisure, with the home, with children, with buying products, who wanted more out of life. That more she defined as careers. She did not discuss who would be called in to take care of the children and maintain the home if more women like herself were freed from their house labor and given equal access with white men to professions. She did not speak out of the needs of women without men, without children, without homes. She ignored the existence of all nine non-white women and poor white women. She did not tell readers whether it was more fulfilling to be a maid, a babysitter, a factory worker, a clerk or a prostitute than a leisure class housewife. She deflected attention away from her classism, her racism, her sexist attitudes towards the masses of American women.
1: It just makes me think this doesn't resolve, like from a Marxist perspective, this doesn't really resolve the issue. But okay, so you've got a bunch of like wealthy, white, college-educated women who are bored. Mm -hmm. Great. Do you know who needs a lot of help? (laughs) Like you could open your house to be a daycare center. You could that for working women. You could like contribute your time and money. And I'm sure there were some women in this position who did this, but like, en mass not like one of the answers to I'm not fully realized as a human is great. There are lots of justice movements who could use your time and energy and talents get to work. Right. Not like I need a personally fulfilling career. It's just, I think one of the biggest distinctions between whiteness womanhood and Like women of color, like a feminist versus a womanist perspective, maybe is one way to say it. And that's one thing that came out of
0: this: the womanist. Yeah, that you Mm -hmm. like.
1: Are you thinking about yourself, or are you thinking about how to lift other people? Like, are you thinking about your own happiness and satisfaction Mm -hmm. and accolades and dreams or whatever, or are you thinking about how everything you can do can be? in service to those around you, those behind you, et cetera. Like it's, it's so stark. I've witnessed it firsthand. I've experienced it myself. Like it's, it's something I have to check in myself Mm -hmm. that it's that lift-while-you-climb idea does not come from white women. Yep. Right? No.
0: No, Ugh. and she says that, like, so these concerns are not the concerns of the masses of women. Masses of women were concerned about economic survival, ethnic and racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. When Ferdinand wrote The Feminine Mystique, more than one-third of all women were in the workforce, although many women actually long to be housewives. Only women with leisure time and money could actually shape their identities on the model of the feminine mystique. And she says mm-hmm. from her early writing, it appears Friedan never wondered whether or not the plight of college-educated white housewives was an adequate reference point by which to gauge the impact of sexism or sexist oppression on the lives of women in American society, nor did she move beyond her own life experience. Examined from a different perspective, it can be seen as a case study of narcissism, insensitivity, sentimentality, and self-indulgence. Slow clap for Bell.
1: Yes, my God. And you're (laughs) right, it does make me, it makes me really want to read this book, find it for free, so I'm not paying a State, Mm -hmm. but I... Like it makes me really want to read it so I can reflect on all the ways that I do that same yep. thing. But I'm narcissistic and read that, read those adjectives again. Cause that yep. was
0: narcissism, intense. insensitivity, sentimentality, and self indulgence.
1: Yeah. Those four. Yeah. Those four. I need
0: to put on like a sticky note on my mirror. Yeah. She says, like Ferdinand before them, white women who dominate feminist discourse today rarely question whether or not their perspective on women's reality is true to the lived experiences of women as a collective group. This is 1984 Mm -hmm. that Bell Hooks wrote this. It is just Mm -hmm. as true in 2022 that we still Mm -hmm. do not often question whether or not mm-hmm. we're really part of this, like we're an, analyzing the collective group as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, there's a couple of points that I definitely really want to get to. So she also talks about kind of capitalism. She says class struggle is inextricably bound to the mm-hmm. struggle to end racism. The class is much more than Marx's definition of relationship to the means of production. Class involves your behavior, your basic assumptions about life, your experience, mm-hmm. validates those assumptions, assumptions, how you are taught to behave, what you expect from yourself and others, your concept of the future. It is these behavioral patterns that middle-class mm-hmm. women resist recognizing, a neat trick that helps them avoid really dealing with class behavior and changing that behavior in themselves. Mm-hmm. White women who dominate feminist discourse have little or no understanding of white supremacy as a racial politic politic of the psychological impact of class of their political status within a racist, sexist, capitalist state. And then she talks about how there was this push um, around this time to say that you can't compare suffering between women. She said women there was a writer who said women suffering under sexist tyranny is a common bond among all women. Suffering cannot be measured and compared quantitatively is the enforced idleness and vacuity of a rich woman, which leads her to madness and or suicide, greater or less suffering than a poor woman who barely survives on welfare. Less. I'm going to say less. (laughs) This woman says there is no way to measure such a difference. And yes, Hooks says, Fritz's <laughs> statement is another example of wishful thinking, the conscious mystification yeah. of social divisions between women that has characterized much feminist expression. While it is evident mm-hmm. that many women suffer from sexist tyranny, there is little indication that this forges a common bond among all women. I think this is kind of how we started about yeah. wanting to do this podcast. Those are just horrification. I don't know, That's not a word. Um <laughs> whatever I made it up our horror that like women were not yeah. in solidarity with each other. There's no such yeah. thing as solidarity among white women. And hooks puts like words to why this is She said There is much evidence substantiating the reality that race and class identity create differences in quality of life, social status and lifestyle that take precedence over the common experience women share differences that That's are right. rarely transcended. The motives of material privilege, educated white women with a variety of career and lifestyle options available to them must be questioned when they insist that suffering cannot be measured. It is a statement (laughs) I have never heard a poor woman of any race make.
1: Of course not. Yeah. Ugh.
0: Yeah, it says she says sexism as a system of domination is institutionalized, but it has never been determined in an absolute way. It has never determined in an absolute way the fate of all women in the society. I love the way that she talks about this. Okay, the difference Mm -hmm. of being oppressed between being oppressed and being discriminated against, because this is a very important difference that I think that we need to be careful of. She says being Mm -hmm. oppressed means the absence of choices. Many women in this society do have choices as inadequate as they are as they are therefore exploitation and discrimination are words that more accurately describe the lot of women collectively in the United mm-hmm. States Many women do not join organized resistance against sexism precisely because sexism has not meant an absolute lack of choices for them. They may know they're discriminated against on the basis of sex, but they don't equate this with oppression. Under capitalism, patriarchy is structured so that sexism restricts women's behavior in some realms even as freedom from limitation is allowed in other spheres. The absence of extreme restriction leads many women to ignore the areas in which they are exploited or discriminated against. It may even lead them to imagine that no women are oppressed. And that is 1 million percent mm. true. I have talked to a handful of women, at least when talking about sexism, who just don't think that it's real. They're like, I've never experienced mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, I've never had anyone discriminate against me because I'm a woman, which is just, even if that was true, again, it's this problem of so your experience encapsulates everything. So because you right. didn't. Have that experience, you're going to say that no women have that experience? It's so weird how psychology operates like that in the human mind (laughs) to think that because I didn't experience it, it's not really a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's another part that I have highlighted and starred here that says... As more and more women acquired, oh, this is talking about feminists in the early feminist movement and talking about the ones that became successful. She said, as more and more women acquired prestige, fame or money from feminist writings or from gains from feminist movement for equality in the workforce, individual opportunism undermined the appeal for collective struggle. Women were not opposed to patriarchy, capitalism, classism or racism. Who were not opposed to those labeled themselves as feminists. Their expectations were varied. Privileged women wanted social equality with men of their class. Mm Hmm. Mm Hmm. So that and Mm -hmm. and she goes on to just Mm -hmm. kind of talk about like feminists Mm -hmm. as this bourgeois bourgeois, avant-garde movement, and she quotes feminist Antoinette. I think is how you say her name, who says inversion does not facilitate the passage of another kind of structure, saying that feminist women are Mm -hmm. just trying to climb the
1: same ladder. They're like inside a super fancy house wanting to like eat all the cake. Mm -hmm. They just want. Yeah. But they don't care about Mm -hmm. anything that's happening outside of the fancy house Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i loved this
0: part of um, antoinette folks quote that she says the difference between the sexes is not whether or not one whether one does or doesn't have a penis it is whether or not one (laughs) is an integral part of a phallic masculine economy some of these women's writing is awesome awesome i love it um Okay, so mm-hmm. just one other part. I mean, this is really good. This is the first chapter of her book, From Margin to Center. And it's talking about Black mm-hmm. women and feminist theory. So I definitely want to read more of this. Um, That's Antoinette Folks. No, this book? is Bell Hook's. This is Bell Hook's and Oh, Bell Hook's book. Bell Got Hook's it. book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, this whole chapter is super, super good. But the last part that I wanted to say... Um, That I think just encapsulates her criticism is as long as she said, as long as any group defines liberation as gaining social equality with a ruling class white men, they have vested interest in the continued exploitation and oppression of others.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: So I think Mm -hmm. that's like a very Mm -hmm. good, like you said at the beginning, even though we know that the way that feminism and waves of feminism is problematic and that the feminine mystique being like this opening for the second wave of feminism is really a problem. It highlights these problems. I think it's a great part Mm -hmm. to start thinking about what these issues are and moving forward, what we need to be really, really careful about.
1: Just the image that came into my mind when you read that last quote is like a group of bullies, like kicking someone on the ground and, a woman coming over and be like, "But let me kick! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, why won't you let me kick?" Yeah. And then making that into like an issue of justice. Yep. Yeah. No. yeah Okay. Well. <sighs> anyway. Thank you. That was great, <laughs> and I really do want to learn more about that pamphlet. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm excited. This is just like the tip of the iceberg. So, thank you. Yes, that's great. Oh, yeah, I'm
0: looking forward to talking about like more of these critiques and more of the women who have come out recently writing about issues that really do collectively. And of course, collectively we're never going to be able to encapsulate all the experience of women in one definition. And that's the point. Like we have to be Mm -hmm. okay with not being able to put that all into one box. And also it's not to say that the experience of these bored housewife women didn't also have validity and structures that needed to be changed or that a lot of us have but, not benefited from that.
1: Sure. But contextualizing it, like understanding the systems it fits into. And then that if you do that, it leads to very different solutions yeah. to that problem. Yeah that that's how you frame it or what you attribute as the root cause of the problem will matters enormously. Yeah. Okay. I okay. have to get back up into the germs to relieve my <laughs> partner okay. of childcare, right. but um, Thanks, good to guys. talk to you. Yes, have a great talk week, again. everybody. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.